listening to Affect Autism, where Affect is the number one tool we use in supporting child development through playful interactions. We Chose Play is a new series documenting my family's floor time journey. You can see the preview on YouTube, and you can register to watch the extended trailer for free at affectautism.com play, or just go to wechoseplay.com. With each episode, you'll glean insights, tips, and reflections, what I learned and what I know now that I would tell myself back then along the way. I hope it will support caregivers in their floor time experience. We chose play. We have joy every day. Welcome back, listeners and viewers. I'm Daria Brown, and I am so beyond thrilled this week to have Dr. Gordon Neufeld, who is a developmental psychologist from Vancouver, British Columbia. He's the author of the book, Hold On to Your Kids, Why Parents Need to Matter More Than Peers, which is co-authored with Canadian physician Gabor Matei. Dr. Neufeld's theory of attachment includes six stages in the development of the capacity for relationship. He is the founder of the Neufeld Institute based in Vancouver, which provides education and training for parents and professionals based on his theories, where I have taken countless courses and am currently enrolled in one right now. Welcome, 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 Dr. Neufeld. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me. I took your courses once my son was born 13 and a half years ago, and it just, um, everything resonated with me in terms of parenting. And once he had his autism diagnosis, I happened to watch the national and hear a spot about DIR floor time, which was a new approach to autism. It was a developmental approach. And so Right away, I, I knew about the developmental approach from your theories, and it just fit in so nicely. And uh, boom, boom, zoom ahead. I'm still taking your courses. I, I mention you in my blogs all the time. Um, I think your theories just make so much sense. And, and like you say, when you see things through a model of attachment, everything sort of falls into place. So yes. yes. It is an absolute thrill that you agreed to be on my podcast. Thank you. <laughs> well, thank you. And uh, yes, it's uh, it's an insight-based approach, which many are not used to because they're used to strategy-based approaches. But this is all about making sense of uh, of a child from inside out uh, and uh, and from that place, finding the dance. Absolutely. And I, I feel that that's what we're doing in floor time too. And I attended your last conference, which was virtual. Mm -hmm. And you spoke about uh, two of the things you spoke about, I want to talk about today, because I think they were such important uh, pieces that put everything into perspective. You spoke about emotional well-being versus mental health. So there's such a buzz around mental health in the last few years. And you prefer calling it emotional well-being, so we'll discuss why. And the emotional playground versus just play. So my new tagline is we chose play. I made a documentary about my, my family's experience uh, doing floor time over the last 10 years. And it really is about an emotional playground. Um, so I, I would love to get into this. Let's start with the whole mental health piece. Well, I, so you some context for this um the, the construct of illness um uh, as you're probably aware most of the listeners were aware was a, a, a real revolutionary construct uh to humanize the treatment of um of the mentally ill uh, and 
well, they were even calling them mentally ill. They weren't called mentally ill. The insane, those that were no longer able to function, could not get their bearings. And so the idea of illness, that they couldn't help it, was was a metaphor that was used by those that were trying to humanize the treatment. And, and first of all, this is reserved to individuals who have lost their bearings, uh, who have suffered some loss of identity, so they cannot locate themselves in time or space, or at least not consistently. And so it was reserved for this. One of the uh, unexpected effects of this was that it put these it put these people in the hands of doctors, uh, doctors who knew nothing more about it than anybody else did, for that matter. Uh, but it and they still are not trained. Psychiatrists don't really get any university education about this. It's just a residency with somebody else. So it put them in the hand of, of physicians rather than as as a concern about humanity, about the nature of suffering, and so on. Uh, so two things happened there. Once the doctors uh, who began to actually create uh, all the syndromes, uh, starting off with, uh, I forget what it was, in the Diagnostic Statistic Manual, number one, but now it's over 365. Now, there are two things, is that everything in that syndrome is called a mental illness, where this was only reserved for those who had lost their bearings, is for the insane, and so on. It, it means that everybody now is in the hand of doctors who hand it over to the pharmacists uh, to be able to treat the symptoms of this. Now, we can't go around talking about, uh, about mental illness, and so it was flipped around to mental health. But it still came, that was just a way of euphemizing mental illness, and so it is the opposite of it, but it made it a bit easier. But it, it, but it gives rise to the idea that it has to do with a problem of the cerebral cortex rather than with the limbic system. And it, and it gives rise to the idea that there's a really, really is an illness. Uh, it's not a virus. It's not an illness. It, it's not an illness in so many ways. It's just that we should have compassion rather than judgment. And so the whole, the whole infrastructure is wrong. And what's happened now is that 60% of us are, according to statistics, are mentally ill. So now it has no meaning if you're psychotic or schizophrenic, there is no differentiation. If you have an attention problem, if you have, uh, you know, if you have an agitation problem, uh, if if you have, uh, you're mentally ill. Uh, and, and now we try and reduce the stigma around it. So that's one part of the history, which is ridiculous, because now we're handing our over over our children who label as mentally ill so that they can get access to them and are the experts, but knew, but know hardly anything about it. Uh, and pharmacology is the way that they uh, reduce suffering. At the same time, emotion was thrown under the bus by John Locke. So we have a different route. And John Locke said that, you know, women and children are too emotional. And the only reason children should be spanked is if they're too emotional. And so he threw emotion under the bus. In fact, all inner springs of movement were thrown under the bus. Well, neuroscience is all about the inner springs of movement. So is developmental psychology. But only in, in the last uh, decades or so have we realized that emotion uh, is is not a, a leftover vestigial part of our animal nature. It has a purpose. 
emotion has a purpose and that comes along with attachment which is a preeminent need that is the way we're designed is for a drive for togetherness because that's how nature takes care of us with the togetherness we take care of each other we have here that emotion has a purpose even though we don't know that purpose like pascal says the brain has its reasons so emotion has a purpose it's deeper in the brain it exists in other mammals that don't have a cerebral cortex the problem is is that the blank slate theory evolved into behavioral uh, theory, which involved into cognitive theory, which now goes again to the idea that it is in the head. So if you think right, you'll feel right. When in actual fact, it goes the other way around. Neuroscience shows there's more, more uh, bigger pathways going from the limbic system up. And the, the view from an evolutionary point of view is the cerebral cortex uh, came at the last part of evolution so we could make meaning of experience. In other words, it just more or less interprets experience. Now, if we have a, a different interpretation of, a, of our experience, we'll be affected differently. Yes, yes, to a certain extent, that's true. But those aren't the things that get us into deep trouble. What gets us into deep trouble is when we have when we when there are emotions that are not able to work properly. Now, one of the keys of the emotions is that when an emotion is commissioned, and it's primarily the primary emotions, frustration, alarm, and pursuit, are commissioned to fix a separation problem. They're they're mechanical. They're like pre-wired kinds of things. The brain doesn't know when to stop. Oh, it can't stop with the, the cerebral cortex, the thinking part, it, it has to feel its way through. And a feeling is an emotional, uh, uh, it's feedback from an emotion. So we have to feel the emotion and we have to feel the futility of the fix. So sadness ends up to be the most important way a brain realizes that we can't get through that way. That fix isn't possible. You know, bedtime is there. It's not, it's not, so emotions stop. So now we know that most of the problems, the trouble we have as humans are because of stuck emotions that have not come to an end. There's no period. What is missing? Sadness, but that's been pathologized by mental illness as a pathology and indicative of depression. The, the whole construct of a disorder is very arrogant physicians basically saying that, you know, the brain is a mess. There are at least, uh, you know, 365 things that can go wrong with the brain so we can have syndromes with this. Well, a developmentalist starts off with the brain has its reasons. There is purpose. There is order. So we don't talk about disorder. We talk about what it is that the brain is trying to do. And so the early developmentalists in schizophrenia were trying to understand what is the brain trying to do? What message is it there? How can we help it? It, it, it wasn't slapping it with something is wrong. The, you know, the brain's a, basically a disordered. And so the, the doctors of disorder, as you know, are in cahoots with the, with the, the pharmacology. And now we have very few, like a tiny committee of psychiatrists who decide what the mental disorders are. There's, there's no wisdom in this, no cultural wisdom. And then everybody goes, oh, 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 I see. Now we call it uh, on the spectrum. Well, oh, my goodness, because three people decided that that's what we do. You know, mm -hmm. uh, and now we uh, anxiety is a mental illness. And the whole thing is 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 breakdown. I, 
was uh, was giving an address to uh, to we call them mental health workers now, mental health professionals, to about two thousand of these in a sense, and and I said, okay, how many of you are mentally ill? Give me your hand. Well, you know that at least by the statistics, two thirds should put their hand up. Two people put their hand up. And I said, yeah, you don't even believe in this yourself. Why are you practicing this? Um, but it's in our language now, unfortunately. We can't do anything about it. People invite me. And in fact, I was just invited the other day to a very large international conference on mental health. How can you say, I don't believe in it? You know, but uh, no, I have to go and I have to work within it like everybody else does. Uh, because, But I've been languaged out of culture has been languaged out of common sense has been languaged out of and children are now given in the hands of people who don't know what to do with them i can tell people that are listening if you've taken dr newfeld's courses there's a lot more context to almost every phrase he included in there because i there, there's so many layers behind it all but um, a couple of things jumped out at me that I thought would be uh, uh, relevant for this podcast. Number one being looking for the why behind the behavior. That's what we talk about in floor time. There's always a reason why our children are doing something. And instead of treating it behaviorally and trying to sculpt their behavior, we want to understand, you know, why are they doing that? First of all, to answer, to ask why, you have to believe that there's a why. Okay. And that is the issue here. Uh, it, it is mental illness is still the idea that is cognition. There is not inner springs to behavior. The inner springs are that which moves us. Emotion literally means to move. So when you ask why, it is assuming that the inner movements are where it comes from. Like, So I'll give you an example. If, if a child uh erupts in in uh attacking energy in some way be it hitting their head when you come with the idea that their inner springs to movement and you know the primary movements what is a primary movement well when frustration turns foul it turns into impulses to attack so we know now and we've actually known that ever since uh the frustration aggression hypothesis in 1939 that 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 uh, that somebody is frustrated Okay, so one is frustrated and it's turned foul, and so it's erupting in, in impulse in attacking energy. So now, if you add a consequences to that, if you send a child away from you, which is actually playing with the most provocative of all, facing separation because attachment is there, does it increase the frustration of a child or does it decrease? I use that in one of my blog posts. Yeah, uh, it's it, like you're saying, oh, would you like to have some more frustration exactly. with your frustration? And, and, <laughs> and that's the whole point. All you have to do is is go to where all neuroscience has already gone to. There's inner springs to behavior. If there's no inner springs, I reinforce behavior by rewarding it. I discourage behavior by some aversive consequence. And that's how I was taught in graduate school. Everybody was taught. And that's where the dominant paradigm is. If there are inner springs to behavior, then everything depends upon the insight you have, as you said, of where that comes from. And is a child alarmed? Are they in high pursuit? Are they frustrated? Are they cycling? Uh, this is it, are the instincts. Is, is a child shy, reserved for his people only? Uh, is it an instinct to 
pursue proximity. It has that flipped, is in now resisting all proximity, as is very characteristic in autistic children. Uh, is it an alpha instinct to always have to control, et cetera, et cetera? Well, when something something isn't working, you would have high frustration, high alarm, and high alpha instincts and a preponderance of the instinct to detach, to resist contact and closeness where you're pursuing it. Well, that is pretty well synonymous with classic autism right there. Yes, and you really talk about that sense of safety being in that attachment relationship with primary caregivers. A question that just pops up, I feel like I've you know, been ex an extremely safe relationship for my son. Um, he's able to be with me in his great happiness and his great sadness. And, you know, I, I'm, I can co-regulate with him and I can comfort him, but he always has this high uh, anxious alarm energy about him needing to know what's coming next. And it could be that he's, you know, trying to figure out space and time and understand concepts of time. Cause it, still confuses him when I say in 20 minutes, he says, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, 20. Is that 20 minutes? <laughs> and I'll say, no, no, that's 20 seconds or whatever. But he's always um, curious to know what's coming next and repeats the same questions to me over and over and over and over, even though I've told him the answer a hundred times. Yes. Well, if, if, first of all, the, the, the main problem in hypersensitivity is that the brain has got uh, that there's more input than can be properly interpreted and give meaning to so you've you've got a flood of information uh and that's always the underlying thing in hypersensitivity whereas if if the sensory gating system that which controls the input the estimate is is that only three to five percent of information would be let in because our brains have never evolved to be able to deal with more than that now, what happens with hypersensitivity is it's letting in more than that. And the more information is made, is in, the less meaning can be made out of it. It's, you know, flooded with in, information. Um, and, uh, and, and, and so the, the, the more you can slow things down, the more you can bring into the realm of play, because play has its own, in play, it draws in information according to interest rather than like the whole filter system in the brain is different. The The autistic child has a much greater chance of being able to do those those things that doesn't count for real. And the brain has a chance. It rests from the major dynamics of attachment and so on. It's able to rest from those things, which are always the most urgent things. And you get some play in the system where the brain can has more plasticity and can find workarounds. So the fact that that you know little things would be highly overwhelming is because they are. Is it just way too much is getting into the brain uh, for the brain to have to make meaning of it? We do best. Everyone does best when things are slowed down, when things are you know the stimulation is lowered. When there's space in the music, when everything is there, we all do better this way because there's less of a load in the brain. However, when it increases, then, you know, our brain comes with blinders and all kinds of filters and so on. And it's these things that are not working as much as uh, in, in the same way, which are causing the information overload. And so it's that uh, sensory, uh, it, it's the input overload, signal overload 
which is at the root of the challenges uh, with the autistic child. And one of the things that you said goes into the, the concept of the emotional playground. You're, you're talking about play and rest. And that those are two major concepts that you talk yes. about in your courses. The, the, the child needs to have rest from pursuing attachment. And if they're feeling like their primary yeah. caver, caregivers are not um, giving that invitation to be in their same space, uh, if they don't feel safe, they don't feel loved, and they don't feel all of that, they're in pursuit of this attachment. And you need to yes. have the rest from that attachment to grow. Everything is the child grows at sleep uh, physically, the brain uh, repairs, uh, puts memory into place, accesses, everything happens in the rest mode. Everything else in the brain is trying to work for the moment. And so any growth whatsoever happens in the rest mode. And the, the most important work is the work of attachment, pursuit and proximity to be able to have a home base. So rest from that is, yes, and rest uh, and play is a state of activated rest where the other agendas are temporarily suspended because it doesn't count for real. And so the, the brain is, even though not asleep, in the play mode, it's the same kind of uh, same a kind of state that the brain is in, which is a state of of repair, recovery, memory, uh, you know, growth, and so on. And and that's why the you know the, the two most important things for any child are are to enter play are a secure connection, a secure a secure home base. And plenty of opportunity for true play, which is not outcome based. It's not uh, most screen play is not true play. Most sports play is not. Most playing instrument is not, and not true play because it's outcome based. True play is play for play's sake, and so when it doesn't count for real. But those are the 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 two things that are for any mammal are the key. If you're doing rehabilitation with an orphaned elephant, if you're working, if it's for anyone for for foster kids. So when anything goes wrong, you retreat to the basics. You go back to the beginning. If something isn't working, you always retreat to those areas. I, in the beginning of my career, I would have huge arguments with those psychiatrists that they would say to me, oh, that's all very well indeed uh, for normal kids. But we're working with uh, with kids with, you know, with diagnosis and up to six diagnosis. And no, 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 no. Is 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 the more the the more things are not functioning uh, optimally, the more it is important for the for the brain that it finds the rest mode, uh, which is uh, uh, you know which is in the context when uh, uh, when somebody steps up uh, to to meet those basic attachment needs to hold on to the child to provide an anchor point and those and of course uh, the play yeah i mean it seems so obvious when you understand it that no strategy we should have and like everything should be reduced to those areas i i just i had an opportunity not uh, not too long ago to address both ukrainian teachers uh in this time of war and as well as ukrainian mothers who had fled to poland with their children and so in both cases, in my address, like there was nothing else to talk about, but, uh, you know, emotional first aid, which is play and connection. Like, you know, if, you, if you're going to talk about trauma, play and connection. If you're going to talk about, uh, 
about what would be the optimal ways that uh, children would learn in school, play and connection. Like, like it, it, it's really quite simple. And uh, it, the problem is, is we've got, we've got lost in the details. We, we've lost the forest for the trees. We, we, we don't understand just like, this is what is important. And play as a construct does not exist in the medical world, in the construct of mental health or disorder. It doesn't exist which should tell you what it is. And attachment, uh, rarely is that construct used. Uh, it's, it's considered that, no, it's not the parent who's the answer to the child. It's the expert who's the answer to the child. So they get it all wrong. No, no, the parent is always the answer. The expert can work through the parent, but the parent is always the answer. And at least in floor time, you've got that idea, right? Is the parent is the answer. The expert works through the parent. Know yes. what it is where a parent is always the answer they're not always the source of the problem they're always the answer they're always the answer and we have to differentiate those two things and it's so counterintuitive how so many of these treatments go against that so instead of resting you're drilling the child with you know yeah. questions and and cueing We're taking and... the child away from you like go figure in vancouver I think it only was two decades now. The only kids that could go to full-time kindergarten were kids that had been diagnosed with, with autism or other uh, challenging disabilities because it would assume that they needed to get to school to be able to get access to the experts and the programs and diagnosis rather than in terms of the parents. Like Everything is the opposite. And, 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 and this is why the pro this again, I go back, the construct of mental health seems innocent enough. It is actually one of the one of the worst turns we have made in contemporary society, because it's taking the children away from the very adults who are meant to be their answer. This is a problem that I see a lot of parents have, where you know, in floor time, we're saying you know, play with the child and connect and all of that, and a lot of parents don't know how to play. They think play is okay. Here's this put this in here, make it do this, you know, with toys. Um, it, I'll give you an example in one of my podcasts with a psychologist, Dr. Ira Glavinsky in Michigan. He said that the, a, a dad came in and he said, I've tried to play everything and whether it's soldiers or this or that. And while they're talking, the child was climbing on a chair. And Dr. Glavinsky said, there's the game. It's the chair game. No, no, and for the next 45 exactly. minutes, they went up the chair, yeah. behind the chair, under the chair, and just enjoying yeah, each other. And uh, when when there is significant, when you can't make sense of something, you're always best taking your cues from the child as to where to go for this and to find your way through. Uh, it's sad if adults don't play because playfulness is the number one indicator of emotional health and well-being. <laughs> You know, I, I, we know this intuitively. Let's say our cat has been traumatized. How do we know when we get our cat back? We know immediately because they take a swipe at us when we're going up the <laughs> stairs. You know, they're playful. They want to play with us. We know we got them back. And, you know, uh, playfulness is that way for all mammals. It is an indicator of well-being, and it is for humans as well. So that's really, really sad. But part of the problem is that we don't, we, we don't properly invite into play. To invite into play, you have to give a play signal that something has altered. Whether you put on a cape, whether you go into a silly voice, 
whether you wink the eye, whether you do something that is a play signal. Uh, when dogs and cats play together, they have their play signals where they enter it and come out. Play is always a defined time. You have to have an entry and a way out, but you have these play signals. Children cannot resist a little bit of silliness on the part of an adult that is being able to be seen as silliness. Or a change in clothing that says we're in to pretend and so on. So a lot of it is just simply about this. But again, as as the 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 person you mentioned, the, the instinct to play is so important. It's right next to the instinct to breathe in humans. It is so basic that if the conditions are conducive, if you hold the space, if there's some certainty, if some security, if the ritual is there, I, generally speaking, if you take care of those things, and you're suspending trying to change the child and do the work and so on, and you, you're just sitting on the floor, you're holding the space, you're doing this, your child will give you a cue. Now, you know they like to spin, you know they like spinning things, you know they like twirling things. So as a therapist, when I didn't have much time, and I had a parent with uh, with an autistic child, uh, you know, a toddler or whatever it is there, I got my fan off, I got the things that twirl, I sat down on the floor, and I started playing with the fan, listening to the noises, doing various things, and so on and so on. I never had a child who, after five or ten minutes of watching me play, didn't come there and start wanting to play with things that that to go round and whir and make noise and so on. And so a lot of it is just going, oh, where's the energy going and how can I make it playful? And uh, because I usually wanted to get the child in in my in my uh, my arms, basically. I, I would actually put the fan in me in a way that they actually had to get between me and their, and sit on my lap without really realizing they were doing it. But there's always a way. There's always a way. If you've got a, a child who has not ever looked anyone in the eyes and only looks at the ceiling and so on, there is a way. There's always a way. You, But that's where you start because play is ultimately engaging, but you walk the maze. It's, you can never strategize it because that's not the way it works. You, you, you walk the maze, you find out what is what is playful there, but that's when the brain, brain becomes plastic. Uh, that's, uh, that's when uh, good things happen. Yes. One of my pet peeves is, you know, people um, saying, oh, you shouldn't do this or the child shouldn't do this or that and and not understanding development. So I'll give you an example. My son's latest thing is saying, you're stupid, mama. You suck. Now, who knows where he heard that? <laughs> but I don't, it's very clear to me that he, first of all, doesn't really understand what he's saying. Mm-hmm. Second of all, he's maybe testing some boundaries, but most of all, most of all, I think he's being playful and trying to see what, what comes back. So I think a lot of parents might say, don't say that. That's not nice, which, you know, is important to say, but would you see that as something in terms of being playful or do you think that's something different? Well, if, if, if it's perseverating, if it's stuck, if it's there, if it seems to be important, in this case, there may be some attacking energy that's there. And the safest place to attack is you. I'd see it as kind of positive. 
and and I it was like oh oh boy you you feeling like you want to call me names right now now put your play face on okay okay going I get my play hat you put it on and you have a little bit of fun just very gently insulting each other and and but make sure it is there but the, the fact is is that anything in which there's not room for in real life because it is it would hurt feelings or be against the rules you've got to make room for in play so mm -hmm. your trick is is oh i think and he may have been just upset with you i think maybe you're upset with me now that needs to come out because i said it was bedtime yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah. I, that needs to come out. And then your idea is, let me think of a way let's do, you know, and then because it's always facilitative. Right. And the, the fact is there's, there is so much frustration in, in where in the brain isn't, isn't able to do its job of keeping the information out. You have flooded frustration. So, so if there's any safety whatsoever, there's going to be attacking energy. The issue then is plenty of room for that tacking energy to come out into play. That's the whole idea. Like that's where emotions need to find a way to play for two reasons, two reasons. Uh, well, actually more than that, but the two big reasons are it saves relationships. If it comes out in play, it saves relationships. Okay. So it needs to come out in play uh, because it needs to come out. And so an emotional playground is first and for foremost uh, to get something expressed that otherwise uh, is you're just pushing it back in. It's going to come out some other way. Uh, but uh, but secondly, it's only in play that that a, a child with that a degree of intensity is going to be able to feel the emotion. They don't actually feel the emotion. We think they do. Because when we have emotions, we 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 only know that we do because we're feeling them. When you act out of emotion, most of the kids I worked with in the prison system, delinquents, most of the disturbed preschoolers I worked with, and et cetera, they didn't feel their emotions. It was simply acting out. When you bring it into the play mode, you they actually get a chance to feel an impulse. I feel like hitting you right now. I feel like calling you names. They actually get to feel it. You can't manage anything you can't feel. You can't mix anything you can't feel. You can't get them to feel without going into play. So again, slam dunk, play is the answer. And it's emotional play. And that is what is so key here is that we need to know that what is moving them is emotion and instinct. These are the inner springs. They need to be felt to be able to foster uh, maturation, growth, um, you know, all of these kinds of things. They can only be so play. It's it's like like emotions are trying to take care of us, but play is what takes care of emotions, and so and so play becomes the our absolute the way through and emotional playgrounds. Like everybody's been thinking about physical playgrounds, and and it and they're important. They're absolutely important. Uh, like I created all for my last son, I created all kinds of spinning things. Uh, uh, I got, uh, I built him chairs that could spin and twirl. Uh, he spent uh, often an hour twirling every day. Uh, you know, trampolines, anything that would would do this. Uh, 
you know, uh, his scuba dive instructor recognized uh, him immediately when he said to him, oh, you're one of those people. And Braden came up to me and said, what, what do you mean? Is there a, my people? Well, he was talking about how you responded to being in the dark, like he got his night night license in terms of scuba diving, and that you actually loved it with all the pressure on your skin and all of this, and, and you, you absolutely loved it. Not everybody likes to be contained and to be cocooned and for pressure to be on the skin. You know, and uh, and yes, there are many of there are many others who do and who love those cocoons to spin at the same time. Uh, but you, you create all of those kinds of things because the, the brain is busy building, uh, creating white noise uh, to be able to decipher signal from from ground. So you, automatically, if you suspect hypersensitivity, you've got white noise. You've got fans for a night. You've got this. You've got that. You know, white noise is your life. Is you're trying to be able to figure out ways to be able for the brain to decipher signal from from uh, from noise. Uh, but again, all of these are in a playful space because play allows for the plasticity of the brain to be able to figure out why. And so, yes, I was saying is there's room for all kinds of physical play, but it's the emotional play. There is alarm that needs to be taken by to play. So as soon as you can play uh, alarming things like peekaboo and it's not too scary, monster, you know, monster, you have to get to the bed to be safe. But it's important to be able to play these things in the context of safety to be able to calibrate the alarm frustration needs to go into play all of these things the, the playgrounds are are where the brain is going to find its 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 work around and the traditional playgrounds are music dance uh, uh theater uh uh drawing uh uh sculpture they're all of what we actually call the arts in in culture these are the traditional playgrounds of emotion uh, now we're just going to borrow them in a little way, in small ways, like you know, uh, with our our children. But those are are the ones. And so to tie it all together, I know I've heard you speak before about play not just being for children, but all of adults need to process oh, yes. our emotions through Absolutely. play. So you mentioned you do woodworking, and that helps that's sort of your play um yeah. people that do music people that you know do the arts like you've mentioned it's it's the emotional playground that helps you manage your emotional well-being right. is that fair to say oh absolutely uh absolutely uh, music is is perfect because there's a beginning and an end in a song or a uh, uh an uh, an orchestral work there's a beginning and an end so it's a perfect thing. The most important music is music that can grab some sadness because sadness is where the brain is plastic because the brain is feeling its way through and there's a sense of letting go when there is sadness. So the most important, like like if, if, uh, if there is difficulty at all would be the lullaby. Why? Because a lullaby is the way lullaby is structured in the minor, minor third, you know, et cetera. Slow, intimate. You're so soft. It's intimate. Uh, it is said. So you have, you know, uh, most music, uh, good music makes you want to dance. Uh, the lullaby makes you want to rock. 
And so you rock. And so you move this. And it is like you've discovered the key of sadness. And so if you consider just a normal thing, that a child, a, you know, a two-year-old is bedtime. Well, the two-year-old is full of agendas. They're full of things to do. They're full of all kinds of ideas. Mommy, I don't want to go to bed. And you can feel them. You know, they want to hold on to the day. Well, the only way they can let go, the brain has to find its way through, is to feel a bit of sadness. So what would an intuitive mother in traditional times do? Sing the lullaby. Why? The lullaby evokes a sense of sadness, enables the letting go. Uh, Then instead of thinking of all the agendas and so on, the child goes to sleep. It is so simple. What are we giving? We are through an emotional playground. We are accessing some sadness, making it safe to feel for just a little bit of time so that we get the brain to do what it needs to do to do the job. Now, if you want to want to bring it down to this, one of the most important uh, uh, instruments of, of dealing with uh, with hypersensitivity whatsoever would be the lullaby. Now, what if your child says to you, stop singing, mama? Yeah, exactly. Because it is feeling too sad. It is feeling too much, too overwhelming. So you've got to tone it down. Whole thing is indirect. If a child is going to feel manipulated by the song or just too much, you have to walk the maze and find your way to it. It's only meaning that, oh, well, I'm getting into charged territory here. Otherwise, there, you know, thou doth protest too much. In other <laughs> words, you're on the right track, you know, but ease it up. Get it in a way, maybe a little bit of a sadness in the story, but maybe only this. But you know that the brain has to have feel a bit of sadness for the plasticity to get out of the neurological ruts that are forming, the perseveration to deal with an overwhelmed brain. So what would you do? And that's how what I mean is you begin to look for the emotional playgrounds that will deliver what you need to deliver. But you're going to try and help the brain, help the emotions, help the feelings do what they do. And the answers have always been there. When you turn to experts, would they ever prescribe a lullaby? Do you follow me? Yeah. You see... When you realize that there's something right with us, when you realize how it is that the human brain works, when you've realized we've been here for tens of thousands of years, when you realize that the hypersensitive have also been here for tens of thousands of years, when you realize all of this, you realize that that our challenge is to put our child into the hands of nature. Play is nature incognito. To be able to have their work, to create a... a a, a cocoon of attachment, a womb of attachment. That's a cocoon. And that if there's movement within it, it we're, we're continually to hold on. These are our challenges. They always have been. They always have been. When we look for outside of ourselves, we lose our way because actually they don't know. They don't know. We're better feeling our own way through and feeling our own way through is to feel sad about the things that are not working. The best way to find the way to be the answer to a child who is highly challenging is simply to feel sad about what doesn't work along the way because your brain goes, oh, I have another idea. We let go of it so we don't get into ruts. But if I find myself saying over and over again, I told you not to hit, then who has the problem? (laughs) Yep. It's the parent. Parent is stuck. 
And now I'm trying to unstick my child when I'm stuck myself. No, it's not going to work. And so, again, it's this. But when we think emotionally, you see, we go to our heart. Out of our head, into our heart. Instead of something wrong, there's something, you know, right. We know we must feel. We know there must be a melancholy thread here someplace. We know that this is there. And neuroscience has all the evidence we need to back that up. But it was all there. All, all neuroscience does is restate the obvious uh, that is there. If we come to a situation saying, I need to be the answer to this child. I don't know what the hell I'm doing, but I need to step up to the plate. I need to feel along the way what needs to happen because I need to compensate for a brain that is being overwhelmed. So how do I be to do it? And I really believe that we would find our way through far more than leaning upon the so-called mental health experts. Well, Dr. Newfault, you've given us so many things to think about, and I feel like we've barely nicked the surface of so many things, but I will direct listeners and viewers to the newfeldinstitute.org. I'll put links in my blog post. There's so many courses that cover uh, hypersensitivity and autistic kids. There's uh, I've taken those courses with Juliet. There's uh, courses about parenting different age groups. Courses uh, about all realms of attachment and emotional playgrounds, lots of courses on play, which I've taken as well, which are fantastic. So um, I hope I hope listeners got a little bit of a taste of why I love uh, Dr. Newfeld's work and how much it complements floor time and, and really, really helps me um, understand what's going on with my child too and, and with me as well. So... <laughs> Thank you so much. Uh, I hope that in 10 years from now, um, people will be talking about emotional well-being instead of mental yes. health and uh, have emotional playgrounds and, and make room for that in schools um, as well. Thank you so much, Dr. Newfeld. All the best to you and the listeners. Thank you. Until next time, here's to choosing play and experiencing joy every day. Get 15% off any DIR 101 course and introduction to DIR and DIR floor time through ICDL.com by using the promo code AFFECTA15, that's A-F-F-E-C-T-A-1-5.